Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God, and we're going to be looking at Matthew. We'll be in Matthew chapter 9. One of the things about Matthew, like we said earlier, was that Matthew was writing to Jews. I also believe that he was writing to Parthenians. I don't hear that much from other Bible teachers and scholars, but uh, there are numerous references if you if you understand the Parthenian culture and uh, its conflict with Rome at that particular time and the fact that if you were going to hide out from uh, people who were sympathetic with Rome, like Herod and the followers of Herod and the Pharisees that were dependent upon Rome holding them in power, had been for quite some time, going all the way back to Pompeii and Aristobulus and how the Romans were brought in to determine who was the rightful king of Judea. And so the the sympathizers with Rome and looking to the support of Rome, and we've also shown you in uh, Thy Kingdom Come and, and articles uh, on the different websites, is that uh, there were special laws passed by the Roman emperor, like Augustus, that they could receive free bread from Rome, free grain from Rome, uh, if the giveaway day fell on a Jewish holiday, and they could come on another day and uh, receive that. They also received a special exemption from the military because of the fact that Pharisees did not march on the Sabbath, so they they didn't have to serve in the military of, of Rome or in uh, troops that were being given uh, to Rome for their, you know, whenever they had skirmishes in that area. I mean, if you were from... Judea, you probably wouldn't be shipped all the way to Gaul to fight a war or all the way to Germanica, although you could be and uh, and be used in that military. But the fact is they had an exemption, specifically the Pharisees who were big on the fact that they did not want to march on the Sabbath. And um, there were other other things that they had. And then, of course, Herod had not only built the temple at Jerusalem, but had built the temple of Roma which was fashioned after Roman gods. But they both provided the same services, the social safety net for society. You would be a member of this social safety net or that social safety net. Now, Rome didn't originally have these social safety nets. Uh, As a matter of fact, they were very proud of the fact that they took care of the needy of their society. They were a very charitable uh, nation, uh, they uh, there wasn't a great deal of slavery uh, in Rome in the early days of the Republic, but by oh you know five hundred years by the time we get down to uh, even Polybius, which is one hundred and fifty years before the birth of Christ, uh, there's been changes wrought in society, and those same changes have been wrought in 
modern society. And uh, over the week, I, I was introduced to, uh, I was listening to uh, Candace Owens, and she was making reference to a series that uh, she had uh, put up, and it was in response to uh, a documentary called Making of a Making a Murderer, I think is what the name of it was. And it was about Stephen Avery, who I didn't know anything about, but evidently he had committed a heinous crime. He had been charged with a crime earlier and found out that he was uh, innocent of that particular crime. At least DNA evidence seemed to prove that he was innocent. And uh, he was released. He had spent 18 years in jail, but he was in jail for other things. Uh, I think it was probably uh, maybe 11 years of that time was for this crime that he evidently didn't commit. And he was going to have a lawsuit against the the sheriff's department that put him in and uh, to jail, you know, at least convicted him through the courts. And, uh, but they had, you know, they had eyewitness testimony by the rape victim that he was the guy. She was in error. He was not the guy. He was similar to the guy, but he was not the guy. There was another guy, and they eventually caught him. And uh, and and this uh, Stephen Avery was released. Well, so be it. He was going to sue. Uh, there was talk of him getting as much as $36 million. At least that was what the lawsuit was for. He probably wouldn't get that because they didn't have any evidence that you know, that the uh, sheriff's department or the investigators or the courts had conspired to conceal evidence. They just had, mis- they were misinformed. There was false testimony. Somebody was in error. You know, it took place at night in the dark, I guess, and and they were wrong about who it was that raped them. And uh, they were convicted. Wrong convictions happen all the time, which we when we've talked about the courts of early Israel... There was clear preference to letting a guilty man go free rather than convicting somebody who was innocent of a crime. And I've given the analogy, you know, like uh, where in many of the court cases that we have, people are convicted on circumstantial evidence. And, uh, and they can be convicted of murder and actually sent to you know, the, the, the gas chamber or the electric chair or hang, hung or whatever, based on circumstantial evidence. Uh, it required in Israel two eyewitness testimonies that you did it. <laughs> and it was you. And, uh, and it went through a, ser- a series of juries of your peers. You know, I mean, you could appeal upward to uh, the cities of refuge. And we've explained that. We have articles up on that. And you go look that up. As well as in the courts of the United States have changed over the years. They aren't the same as they were back in 1776. And uh, we have articles that show how those changes have taken place. But anyway, in watching, you know, I didn't watch the whole Making uh, a Murderer, which I guess was like a miniseries and... And people watched it, you know, binge watched it at times. And a lot of people idea that poor Stephen Avery was, you know, shafted on his original conviction. Conviction, uh, even though there isn't any evidence that anybody, 
conspired to put him in jail, that, that there was evidence, there was testimony. But, uh, and he probably would only receive, you know, like uh, a few hundred thousand dollars, maybe five hundred thousand, maybe even a million dollars in compensation. And, uh, and supposedly he was accused of another rape crime and murder. And uh, then they did this documentary long after he has gone to jail. And the documentary was arranged in such a way as to leave out little pieces of information. Like, just as an example, I mean, there's lots of things. You can go look at it yourself. I mean, and then there's this uh, uh, follow-up by uh, Candace Owens where she examined, does a documentary on the documentary. (laughs) And uh, uh, you get to look at it from several different points of view. You know, you can you can look at the original story, and then you can look at the documentary and how they presented things, and then you can look at Candace Owens' presentation of the documentary and an examination of it. And there were things like they would have testimony from people who now are advocating that Stephen Avery is uh, in jail because of a police conspiracy to convict him to protect them from. Uh, this lawsuit, which is not actually the case, doesn't seem to make any sense. I mean, they, they have insurance. It's not coming out of the policeman's pocket. And the police that were involved in both investigate, well, involved in the second investigation, the last investigation, were not even on the police force when the first one took place. That they're not, they weren't a part of any of that. It's a different sheriff, different police officers, everything. But what I noticed, one of the things is that several of the people who are backing Stephen Avery were saying that they were sure that the sheriff deputy was lying because during the testimony when he was asked certain questions, you could see him wringing his hands and and worried that... You know, and surprised by uh, the the questions, etc. And his response was didn't seem to be very complete. And they had all these problems with the deputy sheriff. The problem was is that the documentary people put the the video of him waiting for the court to proceed, where he's cracking his knuckles. In, on the film, when you hear the lawyer asking the question. And so their conclusion that he's wringing his hands when and nervous when he's being asked the question is not the same time. Not the same moment in time. It's a different moment in time. It's out of order. And uh, his look of surprise was looking... There was no questions being asked when he did. But they repeated putting those images on while you were hearing the lawyers asking questions. And the people were drawing a conclusion because they didn't understand that things were being left out. Things were being moved around. Things were in a different place. Uh, The words that were used to respond were words to different questions sometimes. Or they were incomplete, clipped off. Part of the question was clipped off. Part of the answer was clipped off. Evidence was left out. 
and the documentary led the people to a particular conclusion. Now, why am I talking about this when we're about to look at uh, Matthew Gospel number 9? It's because a lot of things have been clipped out. Now, it's not a conspiracy on the part of Matthew. We make it clear, Matthew is writing certain people who have a certain level of knowledge about, you know, the scriptures. He's using words that, because he's writing in Greek, he's using words that we find in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. He's quoting the Old Testament and he's using those words. Now, we're not reading it in the Greek, generally speaking. Most of us don't read Greek. And so, therefore, we're reading it in English. Now we have ministers who have emphasized certain words without giving us a clear definition of those words. And we're drawing conclusions based on those definitions. Nobody just reads the Bible. They read translations of the Bible based on usually preconceived notions about history, about the Bible, about words like Son of God, uh, son of man, what those things mean. You know, like right away we see in Matthew uh, chapter 9, he says, and he entered a ship and passed over and came into his own city. Now, we're thinking that he actually came into what? What city? Somebody will tell you that that's Nazareth. But he's using a particular word there that we're translating into city is polis. And even the word own, when we look at that in the Greek, why did he write it in that particular way? Well, if people don't explain that to you, you could be misled about that little tiny event. You know, that he, and we'll see later uh, in headings uh, in the Bible, like in, in the the sword, uh, you know, version, software version. They have a heading in Matthew 13, down at the end of that chapter, where it says that he went to Nazareth. It doesn't say anywhere in the text that he went to Nazareth. It's, it says that he went to, uh, well, actually in the uh, English text, it says he went to his country. But the, the, the word there is not necessarily a normal word for country. It's actually the word patris, which comes from a word that means uh, that, that is from a Greek word meaning father. And we've talked about that. Jesus says, call no man father. Now, that's not the word father. That's not the word patri. That's the word patris. But he's explaining in the language of the time. And if people don't tell you what that, or don't correctly tell you what that language meant, you can create ideas that are incorrect. By interpreting these words, which is the same thing that was happening with the people who were watching the documentary about Stephen Avery making a murderer. And the, I, I guess Candace Owens thing is convicting a murderer or something, but anyway, her series goes and looks at this source of information in the documentary and how they skewed the way people were going to think about things by leaving off information. And what is fascinating is that once the people have accepted that Avery is innocent, was railroaded by uh, policemen, 
by the government, uh, by people in government, by the swamp, uh, they will not, you, they can be presented with all kinds of facts, they can be shown these things, and they don't, won't go back. They, it is very difficult to admit that I was fooled. And they even put on the screen with Candace's deal, I, I saw it flash on real quick, a, a quote from you know, Mark Twain. Uh, saying that it, it, you know, easier to, it's easier to fool people than to convince them that they were fooled. Because people don't want to admit that they were fooled. They don't want to admit that they develop a loyalty to their ideas, which is w- the essence of ideology. Ideology, you know, which is taken from two different Greek words originally, but this idea, ology, ology having to do with the logos, with study, with understanding, where once you believe in your ideology, that becomes your God. And you become a son of that God, that ideology. And you will defend that ideology against anybody who tells you anything that is contrary to your ideology. But we're not supposed to believe in an ideology. We're supposed to believe in an unseen mover, uh, a creator of heaven and earth, uh, of somebody that is this divine designer that Jesus was exemplifying, was the son of, was one with when he walked the earth. And so we're going to make a lot of references to things that people aren't going to believe. Uh, or don't believe already, hopefully they will begin to see that everything they were told just ain't so. And that is something that Mark Twain is, you know, uh, warned us about, is that it isn't so much uh, what we believe, but what we believe that just ain't so. And so we're going to say things that seem contradictory to what you've heard. You can... Get a hold of us and tell us that you disagree. But when you do, tell us why you disagree. Show us the facts. And, and of course, we're looking at Scripture. We're looking at the earliest uh, Greek Scriptures, the later Greek Scriptures that we have. But they're all copies. And that's one of the things that we talked about is that, you know, they, the, the, there are certain verses that are missing in some of the scriptures that uh, are translated out there. And they say that, well, that's because people added stuff in into later copies. But that doesn't really hold up well when you look at all the scraps that are older, uh, that have some of these scriptures in them. Uh, when you look at writings that we have that are older, where people are reading Matthew in copies we do not have, you know, and you know this second century, and they're reading and they're quoting those earlier lines that are missing in these other translations. And the other translations say, well, the, those lines were added, but they couldn't have been added because we find them in earlier copies. We just only have a few complete copies, and the. Oldest complete copy we have is missing a few of these verses. At least that's, that explains away 
uh, some of the controversy on this subject. But they, the people were who were reading centuries before that, two centuries before that, were quoting those lines and making reference to them. So they evidently did exist in earlier copies. We just don't have those. But we're not supposed to believe in copies. We're supposed to believe in the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to allow God to write upon our hearts and upon our minds. And so that is our prayer when we go over Matthew is that everybody, you know, calms down. That's one of the things that a lot of people were saying. Calm down. Because <laughs> people would get very excited and compassionate about what they believed about Mr. Avery. Which I, I find it kind of, you know, bizarre. Maybe even macabre. The, the fascination uh, with these crimes, which were just heinous, heinous, uh, degenerate crimes. And that's one of the things we, we just looked at in, in Matthew 8, is that there were these people who seemed to be absolutely possessed, doing absolutely terrible things, hanging out in the graveyards uh, like they were gnawing on bones. Uh, bizarre behaviors. And uh, they seem to be absolutely possessed. We just recently had some shooting, I guess, up in Maine. And somebody shot a lot of people and injured a lot of the people, killed numerous people, and then eventually committed suicide. And on our past shows, we explain why this is. This is the nature of evil. And, of course, that's what we saw in Matthew 8. You can go back and 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 listen to the recordings that we have and read our, uh, Matthew 8, where evil didn't want to be cast into the pit based on other chapters and other uh, Gospels. But they wanted to be cast into the swine. And then the swine committed suicide. They ran over the cliff and committed suicide. It's a pattern of evil. Now, we don't have to necessarily understand it. I don't recommend that people go and try to study it. Let God reveal it to you when, in God's time. We want to see the, we want to become connected with the God of life, the God that gives life, the God that gives life to all the things all around us. We don't want to be connected with those things that destroy life. And so we don't want to be pursuing that understanding unless God wants to give it to us. So, but that is a pattern that we see throughout the ages, throughout the scriptures, both in, in biblical scriptures and other scriptures that may stem back all the way to Abraham. And uh, there is, if you don't seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the alternative will lead you to death, even to your own Destruction and people will hang on to their ideologies rather than let go of them and reach out to the giver of life. And, and that's what we want to be doing in our study is not to pick branches out of the, the tree of knowledge and cling to those branches of knowledge, but we want to seek the tree of life. The Holy Spirit. And so that's where we'll be going as we continue through Matthew chapter 9 when we return to Keys of the Kingdom.
Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we're going to be looking at this Matthew 9, uh, just like we looked at Matthew 5, 6, 7, and 8. Uh, they are very red-letter chapters in the biblical text. And by that I mean they are lots and lots of quotes directly from Jesus, who was the Christ. Whenever you call Jesus the Christ, you're calling him the king of an actual government that was at hand. And change the way in which people related to the governments of the world. Because the government of Jesus Christ was not a part of the world. And of course, we've talked about that. We have articles up on that. That particular word, world, that is used there when Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. And who he was talking to is important to understand. Because he's talking to Pontius Pilate, who's about to sit in the judgment seat to judge whether or not he is the rightful king of Judea, which was the purpose that the Romans were there in Judea, is to determine that very question. And, of course, Pilate determined that that was the real king there. But his kingdom was not a part of the world of Rome, and we've explained that when Pompey first came and was supporting Aristobulus and then withdrew his support of Aristobulus when he found out that Aristobulus was not the rightful king, offered it to Hyrcanus, and Hyrcanus would not take his support. But he was still there, uh, operating as a Roman, and Romans mostly built things like harbors and roads and commerce because they were into trade. But they respected the laws of Judea. And uh, they would support the king, but the king kind of had to ask for that support. And of course, that's how, when you ask for protection, I just had this discussion with uh, somebody who is in the government, that protection draws subjection. And subjection, protection. And so what that means is that if you look to the government to protect you, to guarantee justice, to provide for the needy of your society, then you will become subject to that. That's a theme we find throughout the Bible. And when we look at the Gospel of Matthew, we want to tie it together with all the teachings. And that's what Matthew is doing. Because Matthew's quoting the Old Testament. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament because he's tying together the precepts of the Old Testament. But he starts off explaining that, you know, happy is he, blessed is he, and we we talked about that in Matthew 5, happy is he who is this way, or that way, or that way, or that way. gives you, uh, I think, nine examples of what will make you happy. And, of course, in the Constitution of the United States, at least we're supposed to have the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness Endowed upon us by God. So it means, if we understand that the, those beatitudes, where it says blessed, it's actually saying happy, and, and I've added to the footnotes on that, uh, every place you see the actual word that means blessed, and, and it's not that the word that they translate blessed doesn't mean blessed, but it means blessed in the sense of this idea of happy. Right with. What makes you happy? Is it having lots of stuff and free uh, benefits and free bread and all these things? That what makes you happy? Or is it having a 
righteous relationship with your neighbor and with the people in your community and with your family and with the world at large. And of course, that's what Jesus was teaching us, what that righteous relationship looks like. Because we're supposed to be seeking the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven and the righteousness of God. And there are certain things that are not righteous. And we've been going over those as we went through Matthew 5, very red letter chapter. And then, of course, Matthew 6, also full of quotes from Jesus, from decrees of the king. And he starts right out talking about uh, pure giving versus the hypocrite. And private prayer versus the hypocrite. And public prayer versus the hypocrite. Which is all about the difference between public religion, which is, you know, we have an article up on what public religion was. And this is important to know because Christians were often uh, arrested for not having a public religion. A recognized public religion. They had what we would call private religion. Or what is referred to in James as pure religion. Their religion wasn't connected to the administration of government. And so literally their their conversation, which we see Paul using a word that is translated conversation, that actually means the administration of civil affairs. And, and they translate a conversation, they translate other words conversation, which actually means the manner of life, but... Paul actually uses words that mean the administration of civil affairs because the apostles were administrating administrating or ministering civil affairs for Christians. What kind of civil affairs? Well, they took care of all the social welfare for the needy of the Christian society. And they did that through charity because Christ, as the king, commanded it. So when we went through Matthew 6, we're looking at commands of the king and what that king would consider to be hypocritical. And then, of course, when we went through Matthew 7, he was also giving us more decrees. You know, judge not. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't, you know, you have to enter at the straight gate. Real righteousness, not self-righteousness. And and he warns about false prophets and people who think they're following Christ but are actually workers of iniquity. And he, and he talks about wise men versus foolish men. And of course, we can go all the way back to Saul, who was called foolish because he did something that it was not considered wise by the prophet Samuel. And what was that? He forced an offering. Of course, he was king. He had to put together an army to defend the people as commander-in-chief of the military. He had to protect the people and he forced an offering to support his troops. And he was called foolish by the prophet of God for doing that and was told that his kingdom would not stand. Today, because people think they live in a democracy and often do, they don't even understand the difference between a democracy and a republic, they want to force their neighbor to provide not only defense, but social welfare. All the social welfare. Some, and they want to look to men who exercise authority and force the offerings of the people. 
which Saul was called foolish for doing, I would have to call all people who vote in a democracy, who desire to have their rulers force their neighbors to offer sacrifice for them so that they can have free stuff, I would have to label that under foolish. Certainly it would be labeled under a covetous practice because you desire benefit at the expense of your neighbor. And like we mentioned earlier in this show alone, Polybius said that when people become accustomed to do that, to live at the expense of others and depend for their livelihood on the property of others, they will themselves degenerate. They won't want to hear the truth of that anymore. They will believe in the ideology of coveting their neighbor's goods. And so when we went on to chapter 8, you know, we discussed some of these same ideas again. But by chapter 8, he's actually healing people. He had this power of healing, which he evidently didn't have as much or of or wasn't manifested amongst his own home people. We'll see that in chapter 13. Because in his own home country, they call it, it's translated home country, but again, it's that word patris. They didn't recognize him as a prophet. Some did, obviously. But everybody didn't. Why? Because even though they may have been closer to the ways of the kingdom, their ways were still an ideology. And an ideology is still taken from the tree of knowledge. It's information. It's head knowledge. But the light you receive from the tree of life, from the Holy Spirit, that's a convicting light. Because it will reveal your weaknesses. Not just the weaknesses of the enemy or of your neighbor. We're supposed to love our neighbor. We're supposed to love our enemy. And and we'll get into more of that, why that is. But anyway, in 8, he was healing lepers he was healing the, 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 because of the faith of the centurion. Always there seemed to be a connection. Do you believe? So what does that look like? Now, again, Matthew takes a lot of things out of order. We talked about that at the beginning. But he's, he's trying to give you a narrative. And so he even makes it clear that some of these things aren't happening in the exact order that they were actually taking place. You have to remember... When the apostles started following Jesus, when he said, come follow me, they didn't know that he was the Messiah. They didn't know, they wouldn't know that till way later when Jesus says, who do you think I am? And he has to ask him three times. Finally, he gets a straight answer from Simon Barjona. And that's where he starts getting called Peter because it wasn't that Simon was the rock. But this knowing by the Holy Spirit, that's the rock. That's what you want. Again, that's what I'm going back to is the same theme that we started with in this particular chapter. Is you don't want to develop an ideology with the information I'm giving you. You want to connect with the Holy Spirit. Because you will need the Holy Spirit to face what is ahead in your life, in our lives, together. So that's that's our, our goal, is to get back to the the tree of life, to the Holy Spirit. And in order to get there, it isn't just learning stuff, 
It's learning stuff about ourselves. It's willingness to see stuff about ourselves. Which is why the humble are happy. <laughs> happy, happy, happy. So anyway, we'll just get right into 9. Because also a lot of the Matthew chapters are very long. Lots of verses in them. And, and again, it's a, it's a, another chapter that has red letters in it. Not as many as some of the ones we've already gone through. Certainly not as many red li- lines, you know, words of Jesus. But it's a very important chapter. And uh, Matthew was wise to put these things where he did. And, and I believe that that wisdom was of God. And so now we'll take a look. Because right away. Now, also remember, Matthew didn't put the chapter numbers in. That was put in later. The chapter numbers, verse numbers, that's just to help us navigate around. The headings that I put in here, I gleaned them uh, from Esword and from different places. And some of them I put in myself. But it's helped you organize what's in this chapter. And what's he talking about? But uh, ultimately what we want you to be guided by is not my headings, not the verse numbers and chapter numbers, but by the Holy Spirit. But we use them to navigate through this text. So he starts out, verse 1, as I said, he entered a ship and he passed over and came into his own city, which is the word polis. And, uh, and he says, and behold, they brought to him a man sick. Of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus seeing their faith, their faith, the people bringing them. He didn't ask, see before he asked the lepers if they had faith. He asked the Roman about his faith, or he didn't, he actually just testified to the Roman's faith. faith. Jesus seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son of God, cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, didn't say this out loud, this man blasphemeth. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore, think ye evil in your hearts? For whether is easier to say, Thy sin forgiven thee, or to say, arise and walk. But that ye may know the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. I go through this in depth. I have a copy of the Greek open. I have a copy of the English open. I have a copy of the pages uh, at Prepare You in Code. And I'm looking at this from all kinds of different directions. But then I get up and I go out and I pray about what I just read. And then I come back with answers. And sometimes I go away and meditate. We have a page on meditation. I really encourage everybody to learn that. Because you could see in those people that were following that Avery mystery that I mentioned at the beginning of the show that th- their minds were very excited they they and people were constantly thinking you need to calm down and, and you hear that all the time in, in dramas and stuff calm down don't tell me to calm down but really you can't even calm yourself down but God can bring a peace and calm 
where you're not battling everybody, where you're not arguing with everybody, but you become a light. You're, you're, you're not a flickering light <laughs> in the room, uh, but an actual steady light in the room. And the only way to do that is to be some of those things we talked about in the other chapters. Judge not. Forgive. Uh, so that you can be forgiven. Judge so that you are not judged by the same judgment you judge others. But that requires that you let go of stuff. And that's what really meditation is about. Letting go of your preconceived notions. And letting the Holy Spirit write upon your heart and upon your mind. If you come to every single verse with your preconceived notion, where is there room for God to tell you what it really means? You should come to every single verse, every single word, asking God, so what does this mean? And you also want to make sure that you're asking God, what does it mean? And not those other spirits that wander around. Uh, I'll talk about it in the afternoon show, probably, uh, about some of the things that, you know, the, the, there was a spiritual awakening taking place at this particular time and the time following the crucifixion. There was a spiritual awakening and there was evidence of this actually in the sun and the moon and the stars, which is a quote from Jesus, you know. And, and he said that, that this would be visible. And and that same thing is, is coming upon our own time. And it has a way of connecting people who begin to see the light. And you have to remember what light you are able to see, you see only by the grace of God. It isn't because you really studied, studied really hard. So meditation is mostly sitting down and waiting upon the Lord to reveal to you that which you cannot know by your own efforts. So in verse 9 we see, And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew, not this Matthew, different Matthew, sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Now, the immediate response, we'll see this in others as well. The immediate getting up and going. Where there, there was no excuse making. Well, i got to finish my work here and then I'll catch up with you. When the Holy Spirit calls you, you need to be ready to go. And, and this is what Matthew is trying to impart with this narrative of these events. And it came to pass as Jesus sat at meat... In the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Remember the word disciples means students. These, these are his Padawans, his, his guys that he is now going to train up in the way. And they're going to end up with some of these same abilities, he says even better abilities than we're seeing. And they're going to become a conduit for this Holy Spirit that will reach out and touch other people. But right now, he's mingling with publicans and sinners. And of course, you know, we can look at the, the Greek word for uh, publicans, telons, uh, is, you know, is that really, it, it actually means a renter 
a farmer of taxes. And what it is, is it's an actual position you buy. You buy that position. You have to pay money to get that position. Occasionally you can do a favor and somebody will just give it to you. But then you sort of, you, you sort of bought it with the favor <laughs> that you did somebody. You know, like you saved somebody's life or something like that. Or maybe you're a member of a family and he wants to, he says, well get, get a job for my son. I always remember the stories with Ronald Reagan and his vice president at that time had this son hanging around. The White House, and he really didn't have any time for him, but eventually he gave him a job. <laughs> and eventually he became president too, but he thought he was rather incompetent. But anyway, that, that's, that was the swamp. Then this is the swamp back in those days. Somehow or other, this Matthew had got to become a farmer of taxes. He was a, had held his position as a tax collector. In ancient times in Rome, this often went to equestrians. It went to wealthy people who didn't need the money because they were less likely to steal. And uh, But nowadays, you know, it's just amazing. Over my life, I've watched the government. You know, there's always been corruption. Wherever you centralize power, you centralize corruption. But today, it's so blatant and open. And nobody could do anything about it. And, of course, that's because they've done a 100 years of, of legal charity. And uh, uh, so they've they've created these offices that are just filled with corruption. They're taking all kinds of money and bribes behind the back. And, of course, this even happened way back uh, before they even picked the King Saul. But picking the King Saul wasn't a solution. It was actually furthering the problem, which Samuel tells us in First Samuel 8. But putting all these things together, this man keeps repeating the same mistake. But this... This publican uh, that we see there, and uh, of course the the what, what they call sinners, hamartolos uh, is is the Greek, and there's several different forms of that. But uh, there's us; these are people that are supposedly devoted to sin. They they sin and they intend to keep on sinning. <laughs> they like sin and they have justified sin which of course is what Polybius was talking about is that people were who are accustomed to living at the expense of others those are the sinners the people who coveted their neighbor's goods these are the sinners and and they were fine with being sinners and they desired that but now Jesus is called out about this uh, but when Jesus heard that he said unto them they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. And so what he's talking about is I'm with these publicans and sinners because they need help. And he's bringing light into the room and they're actually coming and listening to him. And they're listening to a lot of these stories that Matthew ends up putting in these other chapters and, you know, like chapter 13, these parables and he was probably telling these stories, but then explaining them over and over again. Again, Matthew is giving us a very brief look at this kingdom uh, and the ministry of Jesus that took place over years and years of time. And he's giving us, so these stories were probably told over and over again, many different ways. And people were writing them down. 
And Matthew probably had access to them. They called them the Q Gospels. People writing, you know, like, I heard this guy today at a banquet. I heard this guy say this, and he'll relate this story. And those are circulating everywhere, all over the Roman Empire. And Matthew had access to a lot of these writings. And from that, he gives us these quotes. And he's telling us what Jesus was actually saying. So he's explaining these things to publicans and sinners. And actually, Paul ends up talking to publicans. Actually, the head of the treasury in Corinth. Convincing them, you know, you ought to collect taxes this way. Voluntarily. Voluntary taxes. Voluntarism. This is what John the Baptist was saying. You know, if you have two coats, share. If you have extra food, share. Do it through charity. Jesus was saying this. Moses was saying this. The prophets all said this. Modern church says, go to the government if you need any help. That's a problem. We'll be back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, in that verse 12, he was saying that he, the physician is needed for the sick. So he's admitting that the, the, the publicans and the sinners, those people who like to sin, think sinning is okay. You know, like we think of, you know, people who think that sinning is okay, okay is like this Stephen Avery guy who believed in raping and abusing people. And I mean, he was demonic. And, and he wanted to get other people involved in his d- demonic activities. And, you know, it was, when I first began to see, I had no idea what the, I, I just saw, you know, people send me stuff and somebody sent me this video and, and I clicked on it and it started playing in the background and I, I didn't know what it was about. I knew it was Candace Owens and it was just a clip and, uh, uh, they flashed a picture of this guy. Well, of course now you can't just judge by a picture, but, I immediately said, I could see evil. I could see evil coming out of his eyes. I don't mean that he's evil, but evil is in control of what he's doing, what he's saying. He was a good liar. You know, I mean, he wasn't really a smart liar. uh, I mean, he got caught in all kinds of lies, but, you know, he, people thought that his tone and inflection was truthful. But, that that deception starts to go away the more you're willing to see the truth about yourself. And and he isn't as easy. Uh, it isn't as easy for him to, to fool you once you uh, purge your own heart of your foolishness. And what is your foolishness? Rule over others, judge others, control others, condemn others, because they don't have your ideology. And this this creates a, a spirit of delusion. And of course, that's what we see coming up in the world today is that so many people are deluded. You know, the, I, I think I'm this, so therefore I'm this. No, you're not the creator. <laughs> you're the imaginer. You're, you're worshiping the images that you are creating in your mind. This is delusion. And they want you to worship their delusion. Their images, 
of themselves and of other things and of the world and of what is right and wrong. Well, I can guarantee you that when Jesus was sitting with those publicans and sinners, he was challenging them. He was challenging their delusion just by sitting there before he even opened his mouth. It would have been fascinating to be in on these conversations. And, of course, that's what Matthew is trying to do is to give you some sort of insight into these conversations. And he follows that up with, you know, that it is is not those who are whole who need a physician, but those who are sick, those who are not whole. He says, but go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. So when he says mercy, not sacrifice, what does he mean? Do you have understanding of that? Now, some people will take this line and interpret it that the sacrifice was done away with. Nowhere is there evidence that sacrifice, lay down your life for your fellow man, lay down your life for my sake, uh, lay down your life that you may pick it up more abundantly. No greater love that you have than that you lay down your life. That's all sacrifice. Sacrifice is a key element of creation. It's built in everywhere. In every every aspect of existence. Fungus does it. Fungus will sacrifice itself. They will pile themselves up, grow up higher and higher. And then they will produce spores that they will pass up through a canal in the middle of all this fungus and spew it out so that it will get caught on the air and travel farther than the spores would have if they just released them down in their Petri dish. (laughs) So spores sacrifice themselves because as they build themselves up, they become this tower of dead fungus so that they can spread it out to other places. And so that it's built into life itself, sacrifice. If you don't think there's sacrifice anymore, you know, you if you can't just love somebody from the pew. It requires sacrifice. But it requires sacrifice that is enmeshed enmeshed with mercy. And of course Jesus was showing mercy to the publicans and sinners. Can you do that to Democrats <laughs> and other sinners? <laughs> Don't want to pick on Democrats because Republicans are just as good at sinning. Uh, some of them are better even at it because they can cover it up better. It's like that Avery. I think he had an IQ of like 75 or something like that. It seemed like I heard that mention was. I might be wrong about that. But I wouldn't be surprised. But a low IQ doesn't mean that you're subject to evil. A high IQ doesn't guarantee you won't become subject to evil. As a matter of fact, a high IQ means that you're more likely to eat of the tree of knowledge. It's it's hard. you got more to set down before you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, Then came to him the disciple of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but thy disciples fast not? Now, the disciples of John were probably all the scenes. Fasting was a big thing. Washing was a big thing with them. And and Jesus doesn't criticize 
the idea of fasting. But he says, and Jesus said unto him, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the day will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. No man putteth a piece of new cloth unto an old garment. For that which is put in to fill it up taketh from the garment and rent it uh, and rent is made worse. The, the tear is made worse. So, yeah, if you've got rotten material, you don't want to spend a lot of time sewing it up. And, and that slipped in there uh, with no separation from what we just saw because he's actually going to tie it together. He goes on to add another, you know, kind of parable picture image. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles. And are they talking about glass bottles? Uh, are they talking about, uh, uh, you know, ceramics uh, of some sort? Or are they talking about wine skins? Because that's the way we see it referred to in another place where they would have a, a goat skin and uh, it would be sewn up so tight that you could actually put wine in it and drink the wine right out of it. But anyway, he says, else the bottles break and the wine runneth out. The bottles perish. But they put new wine into new bottles and both are preserved. Now today with our modern bottling techniques, they can use old wine bottles. I use old wine bottles all the time when I make wine and other things that we make um, for ourselves, vinegar, etc. And uh, but we have glass. But in that time, uh, because of the firing techniques, some of the bottles might not last as long. They'll get brittle. And, but of course, this is just the metaphor that he's he's not gonna. This is why he's picked these disciples who are not priests, who are not, you know, in, in working in the temple. Now he's talking to them, but he's not picking his disciples from them. He's picking them from other walks of life. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk about it later that they were uh, described by a Greek word, idiotes. They, these were people that were literally unregistered. They were separate from the systems of the world because this is a controversy. And we notice because questions are put to Jesus later on, does, you know, and to the apostles, does your master pay the tax? Well, you pay the tax if you're registered in this system. And if you're not registered in that system, you may not owe that tax. You had to be signed up for those systems. They had an extensive system of bookwork involved with all this. But anyway, we'll go on to chapter, or verse 18 in this chapter 9. While he spake these things unto them, behold, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead, but come and lay thy hands upon her, and she shall live. So this is a a statement of faith. He believes that this is actually going to take place. And, and, but they use this word worship. Uh, what, what did they mean when they were saying worship? 
And, and is that the normal word that we would see in, in context in, in that verse 18 for worship? Well, actually it is. And, uh, it's, uh, it, it's this proskunio. It's not the word in the Hebrew. It's the word in the Greek that we see. And, and it's always translated worship. It appears about 60 times. And it's like Greek words. It's from two different words. And, uh, and one of those words means to kiss the hand, uh, or suggests the idea of kissing the hand. And, uh, it's, it's actually a mix in the Greek from, uh, you know, from the Far East. Probably from Parthenia would be a place where you would see this word, uh, make a reference to. But, uh, it has to do with, uh, putting somebody in a place of, uh, of advantage. And you actually, uh, you know, treating that person, you know, like my dog comes up and every day when I go out, he checks my feet. He'll, 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 he gets all excited and he's jumping all around. He's about ready to trip somebody up, but he takes his head down on the ground and he sniffs but my feet because the shoes that I wear will determine where we're likely to go. And, and the dog is a, it's a sheep dog and it's a header. It wants to go out ahead. There are sheep dogs that they call, that are healers, not the, the blue healers from Australia, but that they follow behind the sheep and there are other dogs that want to go ahead of the sheep. And this dog is a header. So she wants to know where I'm going so that she can get out ahead of me. Which is okay in rattlesnake country, I guess. So, anyway, the, the reality is, is this guy is evidently coming up in such a fashion as to show that he, he's a ruler, but he doesn't come up like a ruler. He comes up like he's accepting Christ as the ruler. And so this is why they say worshiped. That he, and he also is expressing faith. He's telling them that I know you can heal them. I have faith in you. And Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And behold, a woman which was deceased with an issue of blood, diseased, excuse me, uh, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood, twelve years came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. And she said within herself, if I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. But Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. And when Jesus came unto the ruler's house, now that's a, we'll, we'll visit this story later because it's an important story. But it evidently, according to Matthew, took place when he was on his way to this ruler's house. And when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the minstrels of the people making a noise, he said unto them, Give place, you know, step back, give me some room. For the maid is not dead, 
but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. But when the people were put forth, he went in and took her by the hand, and the maid arose. And the fame thereof went abroad into all the land. So this is this explanation of this. There's a lot of things that we could add in here. For one, Jesus was a Nazarene Essene. And, you know, a Nazarene would take a vow of the Nazareth, uh, or the Nazareth vow or the Nazarene. And what that would mean is for three days, three weeks, three months, three years, whatever you took the vow for, you were not to cut your hair. And you were not to touch the dead. And this will come up later in the Gospels when we revisit some of these stories. That uh, that you can't go in there because you're not even supposed to be in the same room with a dead person because you might touch them. And, uh, of course, Jesus says she's not dead. And, of course, this is why they mention the minstrels who are making noise. They're, they're making mourning uh, music because they believe that she's dead. And he comes in and he's, he la- uh, says that she's not dead. And they laugh, you know, mocking him. But he goes in and she rises. She was not dead. But then what is death? This is important. You know, I mean, the swine killed themselves. The guy in Maine killed himself. But uh, are they really dead? What What's really dead? Well, killing yourself probably really makes you dead. But uh, Jesus was able to raise this woman from the dead. These guys were already had concluded she was dead, but he said, no, she wasn't. He had these powers, and he said that you should have these powers, but you're not going to have these powers if you believe in an ideology. You will only have be given such powers, and I say given, you won't have them, you'll be given them. They will work through you. If you seek to understand the Holy Spirit. In other words, have this relationship with the Holy Spirit. And that means you have to set down your intellectual knowledge and your ideologies that we automatically create. We fall into our minds for so long, we automatically create these things. So, anyway, in verse 27, he goes on and he says, uh, uh, while he... And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. And when he was come into the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said, saith unto them, Believing that I am able to do this? They said unto him, Yea, Lord. So again, this is an expression, Matthew, there was maybe other things said as well. But Matthew is trying to impart the idea that people were acting upon their faith. They followed him, they sought him, they requested him to heal them, they believed that he could do it, and it says, Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. 
and their eyes were opened. And Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. But they, when they were departed, spread abroad his fame in all that country. So did Jesus know that they were going to go out and tell everybody anyway? Because <laughs> he just told them not to. And they went out and did it. So what's the deal? Maybe by... He's he's not... he's ex, And Matthew's relating that to us. That Jesus told them, see that no man know it. Yet, he tells us that they went out and told everybody. You know, of course, they come out, you know, people who knew them before, they says, can you see now? <laughs> it says, yeah, yeah. And so, it, how, how come? Well, I'm not supposed to tell you, but if you keep it a secret, <laughs> it's one of those deals where it seems like sometimes the more you don't want people to know and you tell them, well, don't tell anybody, but the more it gets around. And, of course, to some degree, it's getting around in a at a level in society which is not, you know, like the minstrels going out and singing it to everybody. But it's going around from house to house, from people you know to people you know. And so it's spreading. But, of course, he has a ministry there. Uh, John the Baptist had a ministry. His ministry is a continuation of John the Baptist's ministry, which was telling the people, "Go, don't go to men who exercise authority one over the other. Don't use force to get the needs that you have in this life. Don't be worried about that, but depend upon faith, hope, and charity. This is, this is the message of John the Baptist. Don't do it by force. And we'll, we'll see this in several different places in the gospel. Where until John the Baptist, everybody was trying to do it by force, establish the kingdom of heaven by force. By, you know, forcing the offerings of their neighbors, by forcing to take away from your neighbor. And, and of course, this is going to degenerate the people. And Jesus is reversing that process. Verse 32, as they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil. Now, here's this mention of possession. This man can't speak. And, uh, but he has supposedly a devil in him. And when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake. And the multitude marveled, saying, it was never so seen in Israel that somebody could do this kind of healing. In verse 34, but the Pharisees said, he casteth out devils through the prince of the devils. He controls the devils because he himself is the devil is what they're trying to say. And this will be addressed. In verse 35 we see, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease amongst the people. So he's going in all these synagogues, these these groups of ten families. And sometimes, you know, they had a big enough area that there might be 20 families represented in a synagogue, but that would be two synagogues in one place. 
But they're, he's preaching the gospel. So he's telling them how the gospel works. It's all those things that we just read in 5, 6, 7, 8. That, uh, you know, he's talking about hypocrites. And he's talking about judging not. And he's talking about forgiveness. And he's talking about charity. But at that particular time, Herod had instituted a system of Corbin, which we will address, that was making the word of God then effect. And it was operating through these synagogues. They were taking up collections and that, those collections would go up to the temple. And the same system was in the temple of Rome. Although they not, may not be organized in groups of Ten, they might be organized in groups of twelve. There were some Greeks that used groups of ten. And, and they called them tithings. But in, in Rome, they often used groups of twelve. But it's the basic principle. Small groups of people gathered together in a network to take care of the needy of society and at a moment's notice to become the militia of society if, you know, somebody's house is being robbed or somebody's getting beat up, that, you, you know, you have to have a group of guys grab this guy who's gone crazy. But if the guy is full of demons, you're going to maybe need a little bit extra power. And the same thing that was taking place at the time uh, of Jesus, I said there was something going on in, on the planet in the, in, the, in the sun and the moon and the stars, according to Jesus, that was causing something to be connected in people. Evil was becoming more evil, more power of evil, more delusion amongst the people, more of this confusion and, and sin. And there was also an awakening to another spirit that was connecting from person to person, where Jesus knows this person's thoughts. And, and the apostles will begin to have that same ability. Because of a particular effect that is going on both in the physical and spiritual realm. Where they're actually coming closer together. And the veil is being removed between the spiritual and the physical realm. So in in this uh, verse 36. But when he saw the multitude he was moved with compassion on them. Because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep. Having no shepherd. Now, is he talking about seeing a particular group of multitude where people are without food and fainting? Uh, or is he just talking about all the people? Because, I mean, he, he's seeing people's thoughts. He's seeing people, what they're thinking. And we'll be back in a moment. <laughs> Welcome back. So, in the, that verse 36, they were talking about Jesus saw a multitude. It didn't mean that he was seeing a multitude right amongst him at that time following him. He, he could see beyond his immediate surroundings. He could see the thoughts of men. He could see the condition of the whole world. From Rome to Parthia, all of Judea, all that. And we can, now we can look out, uh, through the TV today or, or through media or through our, our, our electronic network 
uh, and we can see a lot of what's going on in the world. Of course, there are people trying to manipulate those images, people of the world trying to manipulate those images so that we see things a certain way, so that our ideas guide us, our ideologies guide us, and so they appeal to our ideologies so that they can control where we go. But they have actually scattered the flock. I mean, you see a, a, a fenced-in field, a large field, and you'll see sheep spread out all over that field. I, I have a neighbor, well, he's a neighbor, he's 40 miles away, and he raises sheep, his wife does. And uh, he's just a hay farmer. And you'll see their sheep out in that field. And they are scattered from one end of that field to the other. But they are farm flock sheep. They have been in fences so long they just spread out over the entire field. Now everybody's looking for that little piece of alfalfa or clover that will fill their belly. And uh, you go look at our sheep that are out on the desert. And they'll be scattered out a little bit, but they'll be in a clump walking around. Not a few feet from each other. Moving as a group. They will not leave the group. Now we used to have some of those farm flock sheep with our sheep. And they would gather a few with them and take them off away from the sheep. <laughs> they wouldn't, uh, and they would form their own little group and go their own little way. And of course, the, the one particular one I'm always thinking of, we named her Korah. Because Moses had that problem. Jesus will have that problem as well, and he will address that. But right now, he's seen that, that they are fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Because they had lots of shepherds who were serving themselves. Sheeps in wolves clothing, which we will hear Matthew talking about later. And they are actually giving you an ideology so that you follow them and you, you be a part of their church and their group. And uh, they want to gather you together in groups of a thousand or two thousand or three thousand. Or, uh, but no, they, they aren't really gathering you together in the intimate way in which Christ will be gathering people together. And, and he's also, Christ is going to give people the choice to gather together. And so we see in verse 37, he says, Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Now this is the end of that chapter, but the beginning of the next chapter, he's going to be talking about his twelve apostles, who are disciples at this time. And uh, he's going to be, uh, you know, he'll name them, and, and we'll go through that, and then he will... Uh, uh, Talk. He will send them out. He will send them out in a particular fashion. He will send them out different later on. When he sends them out now, he will send them out with no script and no extra coat and you know, or extra shoes or any of those things. And, and that 
you're just supposed to go out to only certain people, not to everybody. This is a particular, some people quote this like this is all we're ever supposed to do. He says, uh, but he says, go not into the way of the Gentiles. Because this is, you know, they're learning. They've been learning the way. They've been walking with Jesus. And now he's actually going to be sending them out. And the first time he sends them out, he tells them, you know, to acquire and find out who's worthy. How do we know who's worthy? Well, we'll talk about that in, in chapter 10. But right now, uh, I just wanted people to understand that there is no chapter break in the original gospel of Matthew. That people were adding these chapter breaks. This is a contiguous story. And he puts it in this order for a reason. And and if we we realize that there's a lot going on that he's not mentioning here. This isn't an hour and a half movie or two hour movie or mini series. This is actually years of time. Lots of people. Lots of people are involved. You know, we'll see in Luke where there's 70 picked and sent out as well. And they have some of these same miraculous powers that's blessed upon them. Why? I always wondered why the 70. Well, that was Jesus' Sanhedrin. And then many years later, I discovered that there was a Sanhedrin at that particular time in the Bible. You know, from the time when John the Baptist was a small babe. And beyond that there was this huge, well we know there was conflict before, but there was even more conflict. And the Sanhedrin actually got up and walked out. The people that were in the Sanhedrin, they actually walked out and they said, we're not even going to be a part of this old wineskin. (laughs) This old Sanhedrin, we're not even going to be a part of it. But then Jesus is found picking 70 men. Is this Jesus' Sanhedrin? Well, of course, that's exactly what it is. And what are these guys going to do in their daily ministration? They're going to teach people, teach people how to practice pure religion, unspotted by the world. And what is Jesus doing? He's picking disciples who are idiotes, who are not registered with the system of Corbin set up by Herod and the Pharisees. They are registered with the system of Corbin that is set up by Christ, the Corbin of Christ, which is the sacrifice. Corbin is the word for sacrifice. But the difference between the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice that Herod was imposing upon the people was that Herod would enforce his sacrifice with with soldiers and Gabi, Molkai, and and people who were going to compel the offerings of the people and put heavy burdens on them as to what they have to pay. Well, Jesus will tell us parables and we'll see that where he says, you know, that the good servant says, okay, well, what do you owe? What has been imposed upon you by God? By the nature of God's kingdom. And they said, well, this amount. And he says, but what can you actually pay? What do you choose to voluntarily pay? And they said, well, I, I, can, I, I would like to pay more, but this is really all I can afford. My children will go hungry, and if I don't, you know, I'll lose my business. I'll have to sell off my livestock, and and it, I, I can only pay this much. And they said, fine, paid in full. 
painful. Different kind of government. This is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God operates that way. If whatever government you're a part of doesn't operate that way, that's not the kingdom of heaven. That That's one of those kingdoms of the world. And, and they will have their father and they will have their benefactors and they will have their rulers and they will have their leaders. And over here in the kingdom of God, they have their leaders. And they have rulers, but the rulers don't rule over the people because it's only supported by faith, hope, and charity. It's not supported by the foolish offerings of those who force the offerings of the people because that would be a snare. That would be a covetous practice. You know, and that, which is why they tell you in Proverbs, if you sit and eat with a ruler and you be a man of appetite, put a knife to your throat because he, just, he, he serves deceitful dainties. Deceitful meats. And, and, you know, which are shared, David says, Paul will say, that what they offer you, the wages of unrighteousness, the rewards of unrighteousness, they are a snare and a trap. And we'll see reference to this many times in the Gospel of Matthew. Also, I should point out that in when we read in Luke, uh, Matthew is evidently referred to as Levi. And so, is his name Matthew? Is his name Levi? Maybe it's both. Is is Simon Barjona Peter? Well, they call him Peter at times. They call him Peter early on, but he's Simon Barjona, son of Jonah. And so that's really important to understand. And the other term that was brought up in in this Matthew nine is bridegroom. He talks. Jesus equates himself with the bridegroom and this metaphor of the bridegroom. Well, if he's the bridegroom, who's the bride? And, of course, we talk about the bride of Christ and it's supposed to be the church. And what is the church? It's the ministers of a government. But it's different than the governments of the world because it operates by faith, hope, and charity and the governments of the world operate by force, fear, and fealty. That fealty is the snare that brings you back into bondage, makes you a human resources, curses your children with debt. And yet, all this is in the Bible, yet people are still going to, you know, political rallies, which is fine. I have no objection. You know, we don't have any authority over where you go in politics. But if you think that your politics are your salvation, you've missed the gospel. <laughs> you, you you don't want to miss the gospel you, uh, of the kingdom. And you want to understand that the gospel of the kingdom is the solution to the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. It was back then. It is today. And so you don't want to hesitate. You want to be like Matthew. He says, come follow me. And, and of course, it's not, I don't want anybody to follow me. I want them to listen in their hearts and hear if God wants you to follow him. And then actually get up and follow him. Do what he actually says. Which is why we're going through all this. And I keep repeating, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It's the decrees of the king. Now in ten... He's going to talk about decrees too, but specifically to his disciples and his ministers. Jesus was not unchurching us. 
the church is the called out. And the apostles were called out. The Levites were called out. They were the church in the wilderness, the called out in the wilderness, which we see referenced here in, in the New Testament. But they were called out by Moses, and Moses put certain restrictions and criteria on being one of these Levites who were a part of the ministers of the church in the wilderness, ministering to the people. And of course now, if you were to believe the Pharisees, it was all about these rituals of killing sheep and piling up rocks and burning them up. But of course we've already addressed that, which is why we've done a lot of study on the Old Testament first. Because the Old Testament is... Part of the context of the New Testament, which is a why the New Testament is always quoting the Old Testament. God has not been done away with. The precepts of God have not been done away with. Sacrifice has not been done away with. The sacrifice of the Pharisees was done away with. The Corbin of the Pharisees was done away with. But the Corbin of Christ is still in the kingdom. Because Corbin means sacrifice. If you don't Put these ideas together, you won't know that there is a groom and there is a bride. Well, here's another question. If the bride of Christ is the church, whoever the church is, it's not an incorporation of me, it's not an incorporation of the state of Virginia, it's not an incorporation of the Vatican State, it's an incorporation of Christ. It's the body of Christ is the bride of Christ. The bride is bound to the bridegroom. And, you know, and there's a whole doctrine <laughs> uh, surrounding that, which I have explained at the agreement conference way back when we first started putting this all together in Colorado. And uh, it blew some people's minds away, but unfortunately their minds were just completely blown away. <laughs> And they didn't do what they were telling us here in Matthew where we had to go learn what Christ meant by mercy, not sacrifice. One of the first things we have to sacrifice is our ideology. All our preconceived notions. We have to let go. We cannot put these new ideas that Christ is sharing, which are the old ideas. We cannot put them in the old bottle of our churchanity. Uh, of, you know, whether we're Protestants or, or Catholics or Jehovah Witnesses or Buddhists or, uh, what are some of the Hindus or all the different religions. We're not putting Christ in these old wineskins. Uh, Christ is giving us a new wineskin that is wrapped in the love of Christ. Uh, that's why there's 40,000 denominations in Protestantism and uh, a lot of division in the Catholic Church now too. I don't know what you would call it, but I mean, they're, they're the remnant guys and all these different guys. But there is only one denominator of the church established by Christ and that is Christ. And so that's why we're we're focusing on Christ. How you conform to Christ is between you and Christ. Because we're not trying to get you to plug into his holy church. We want you to gather together like those sheep out on the desert. Because there's a lot of coyotes out there. And there's a lot of mountain lions out there. And bobcats out there. We want you to gather together in 
the name of Christ, in, in the character of Christ. And walk in the way of Christ. And so we're just talking about the kingdom, same as Jesus was talking about the kingdom to, to scribes and to, uh, tax collectors and to sinners. Uh, but you have to choose to get up and follow him. And if you do get up and follow him, you will likely start coming together so that you can actually care about others. You can't sit isolated in your cabin up in the woods and care about others. You have to actually come out and care about others. And be concerned with others. So anyway, like I said, if if the bride is the bride of Christ, the church established by Christ, not established by me, but established by Christ, all the way back there then when he was establishing, appointing these people, and then they came out and appointed other people. Now, of course, the Catholic Church and some Protestant churches claim that they have a contiguous appointment all the way down to this very day. And maybe some of that exists somewhere in there. But it is not those who say they have that appointment. But those who are actually doing the will of the Father. And we'll see that come up again too in the Gospels. But what I wanted to leave you with is if if the bride of Christ is the church, who is the harlot? And, of course, a lot of people will, you know, like I said, I have a confraternity Bible given to me by the Catholic Church. And then it says, the, it is the church established on the seven hills. <laughs> That's what it says. You know, but but then there, who's the daughters of the harlot? Is that all the Protestantism? Well, we can get lost in But that now we're getting in the area of an ideology. And, and we can look in... We can look at the tree of knowledge and we can count its branches, you know, for at least from one side of the tree. We can't see all its roots, but uh, I mean, Christ could. But we're not to use the tree of knowledge as our source. So you don't want to pile up too much knowledge because then that's more you have to set down in order to know the way that God wants you to go. Now, we can talk about what the way looks like. It looks like people who are not coveting their neighbor's goods. It looks like people who are living by charity. It looks like people who actually care about their neighbor enough to keep a track on their neighbor. Uh, so, it, it looks like a lot of these things. And, and we'll see it in the early church as we go through the epistles. Because... When Paul is writing, he's writing to people who are doing this. They're not eating the free bread of Caesar. They're, you know, if, if their day off comes when Caesar's giving out free bread, they don't care that he gave them an exemption so they can come on another day and get free bread. They're not going to apply for the free bread from the table of Caesar. But they have their own table of which Caesar cannot eat. And it's guarded not by force of arms, but by the Holy Spirit. And those who have have the Holy Spirit in them know what I'm talking about. They, They have a table that they have put together based on faith, hope, and charity of which 
the people of Caesar cannot eat. But they will not have that table if they are still hoping to eat at the table of Caesar. You cannot serve God and mammon. You will hate one and despise the other or cleave to one and and neglect the other. One one or the other. You have to start. But if you're going to do that, you're going to have to start sitting down in synagogues, which are groups of ten. That's what synagogue really means. That's, that's the way it was defined at that time. It was ten families. I'm not talking that we have to form Jewish synagogues and build Jewish synagogues or anything. No, we have to sit down in tens and start caring about the, our families, the people in those tens, and the people in the next ten. And the next ten. And the next ten. And that care has to reach all around the world so that we care not just for those that we know and can care for us, but we care for people we don't even know. And there's an actual spiritual reality to that caring and that way. And that's the way we have to go. So, yeah, I have uh, I put links up. I've added to the pages on... Uh, what harlots are and who's the harlot and who's the whore and and what it means to be an adulterous generation, which is going to come up numerous times. I I know it comes up in Matthew 13. But uh, the more you realize, because most of the adultery that they refer to in the Bible is referring to national adultery. It's not talking about wife swapping amongst the Pharisees. It's talking about those that go not to the bride of Christ, but to the harlot who rides the back of a beast of force and control and forces the offerings of the people. Goes about devouring who he will. Numerous stories recently that if you're, uh, you know, like my pillow guy and conservatives, you know, they're all talking about uh, the fact that, I mean, was the guy's got like three, four, four IRS audits going on <laughs> at one time. Banks are shutting him down. They're just attacking him left and right. But what he needs to do is, uh, is seek the kingdom of God. You know, he's very much in the grip of ideology. I mean, he seems to be a good guy. I've never met him. Love to meet him. Love to sit down with him and talk just like Jesus sat down and talked with publicans. I will sit down and talk with Republicans. Because <laughs> they're Republicans again. Because they still want benefits by men who exercise authority. The pu- Republicans want that. Not just the Democrats. The Republicans want that too. And that's what we need to repent of. So, not only do Democrats have to repent, and constitutionalists have to repent, and what are some of the... Libertarians have to repent, and Republicans have to repent. Anybody who seeks to eat at the table of men who exercise authority one over the other is not following Christ. Because Christ said it was not to be that way with us. I'm not making it up. It's in the book. It's in Matthew. It's in Mark. It's in Luke. It's actually in the epistles in one form or another. That's what Paul's talking about. We have a table of which they cannot eat. You don't have that table. 
Because you're not sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands taking care of one another. That's going to take a little bit of practice. Jesus, in the first part of his ministry, is clinging on to the followers of, you know, I shouldn't say clinging. Uh, his ministry is partially on the back of the ministry of John the Baptist. Till next week, peace on your house, and God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.